0: Hey, folks! Welcome to the Dark Horse podcast live stream number one eighty something. It's one eighty um, four. Four, of course, mm-hmm. of course, that makes sense because the last one one eighty three. So, sequentially speaking. Uh, I am Dr. Brett Weinstein. This is Dr. Heather Hying. I cannot tell you how many things are taking place in the world. It is just rushing past and everything is in flux. And we are going to talk about several of the components of this today. Indeed. Um, and uh, I'm uh, excited and full of trepidation.
1: Excited and full of trepidation. Well, that does sound like 2023,
0: doesn't yep, it? Yep, sure does.
1: Okay, um, if you are watching on YouTube, consider coming over to Rumble. And uh, once on Rumble, if you want, consider uh, joining the Locals Watch Party, which is where what used to be called the chat uh, on YouTube and Odyssey and Rumble that is now taking place there. We have a moderator uh, in in house at Locals, and uh, I think it's uh, I think it's going to be a good conversation there.
0: I have a slogan for it. Go for it. Who will watch the watch party? Well, not me. No, uh, we can't. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you were juggling a lot of stuff, and so we yeah. can't. But our will, moderator will. who will watch the watch party? Yeah, yeah. yeah our moderator. You, did, you will. didn't want an answer, but uh, no, yeah. I was just uh, it was a so. uh, it was a um, a wink at my libertarian friends. Yes. Yes. Uh,
1: okay. So, um, excuse me. We got two sort of broad, different topics today. Uh, neither of them explicitly scientific. Uh, but as always, uh, everything that we talk about, all of, our entire um, the world and the way that we interpret the world is informed with the evolutionary lens.
0: That is true, and it is also true, as we say in our book, that all true narratives must reconcile. So these things are all part of one story and. We focus here and there, but uh, but yeah.
1: Yes, we do. Okay, so join us after this live stream for a live Q and A, which will also which will only be on Rumble, and uh, you can ask questions at darkhorsemissions We're moving the rest of the stuff to the end, although I'm going to be um, starting up the hour talking some about my piece published yesterday in Natural Selections. Um, you go, girl. Yes. You go, girl. And what we will do today before we get right into that though is uh, talk to you about our sponsors. We have three as always right at the top of the hour and we are very choosy about who we agree to have sponsored the podcast so you can be sure that if we are talking about them here it's because we've actually vetted for and vouch these uh, products and companies and institutions Uh, So, without further ado, our first sponsor this week is Paleo Valley. Paleo Valley makes a huge range of products. Everything we've tried from them has been terrific. Today we're going to focus on their beef sticks. The beef in these delicious snacks comes from small, American-owned farms that practice rotational grazing. Paleo Valley's beef sticks are 100% grass-fed and finished, entirely organic, and naturally fermented. 100% grass-fed beef is more nutritious than grain-fed beef in a lot of ways, including but not limited to that it contains more calcium, magnesium, potassium, zinc, phosphorus, beta-carotene, and iron, and it's also really delicious. If you're thinking that Paleo Valley's beef sticks are like Slim Jims, you're wrong. For one thing, unlike Slim Jims, Paleo Valley beef sticks contain no mechanically separated chicken parts. For another, Paleo Valley's beef sticks are actually good for you. Ingredients hiding in most beef sticks and jerky, but not in Paleo Valleys, include MSG hormones, hydrogenated oils, and brominated vegetable oil, which, if you're wondering what that is, it was first patented as a flame retardant, and now it's in much of your food. Not however if you buy Paleo Valley. Furthermore, unlike other meat snacks, Paleo Valley uses natural fermentation to preserve its beef sticks. This gives the beef sticks a long shelf life without the use of harmful acids and chemicals, and with the added benefit of contributing to a healthy gut. Paleo Valley beef sticks are also keto-friendly and make a great protein-rich snack to grab when you're on the go, like running out the door for a meeting or going on a bike ride. Paleo Valley doesn't cut corners. They source only the highest quality ingredients and are passionate not only about human health, but environmental restoration and animal welfare as well. And they're a family-owned company. Try Paleo Valley's beef sticks today or anything that they've got. We've tried a lot of their products and they're all great. You will be so glad that you did. Head over to paleovalley.com for 15% off your first order.
0: I would just point out that there is a lost piece of history where Slim Jims and their hydrogenated vegetable oils, their brominated vegetable oils, which was first patented as a flame retardant, yes. those uh, Slim Jims were initially intended to be a beef cigarette, but it did not work because of the flame oh. retardant. And oh, only yeah, then they were they, they, they repurposed as snacks. Yes, exactly. Mm. That was the problem. I think you should not. <laughs> yes. All right that was silly no it's good and
1: some gyms won't stay lit so head over to paleo valley for all of your beef stick needs there it is um our second sponsor this week is mud water one of our favorites that's m-u-d-w-t-r mud water makes a fantastic drink it's spicy and delicious and chock full of adaptogenic mushrooms and air i mm, ayurvedic ayurvedic i never know how to pronounce this word ayurvedic herbs
0: i would say ayurvedic but i might just you say it wrong. Know what i mean yeah
1: With one-seventh of caffeine as a cup of coffee, you get energy without the anxiety, jitters, or crash of coffee. If you like the routine of making and drinking a cup of warmth in the morning but don't drink coffee or are trying to cut down, try mud water. If you're looking for a different way to kick off your day with a delicious, warming, enhancing way that isn't just a caffeine rush, try mud water. Each ingredient was added with intention. It has cacao and chai for just a hint of caffeine, lion's mane mushrooms to support focus, cordyceps to help support physical performance, chaga and reishi to support your immune system, and cinnamon, which is a potent antioxidant. Mudwater also makes a non-dairy creamer out of coconut milk and MCT, and a sweetener out of coconut palm sugar and lucuma, the fruit of an Andean tree used by the Inca, to add if you prefer those options. Or you can mix and match. Add a bit of their coconut milk and MCT creamer with some honey from bees, or use Mudwater's Lacuma and coconut palm sugar sweetener and skip the bees entirely. Mudwater is also 100% USDA organic, non-GMO, gluten-free, vegan, and kosher certified. Which bees usually aren't, incidentally. Mudwaters, are they?
0: I'm imagining the rabbis (laughs) chasing the bees around trying to... Bless them and certify them, and it seems unlikely.
1: It seems unlikely. That's that. So I'm going out on a limb there, but I think it's a safe one.
0: It's a pretty thick limb.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mudwater's flavor is warm and spicy with a hint of chocolate plus masala chai, which includes ginger and cardamom, nutmeg, and cloves. It's also delicious blended into a smoothie. Try it with banana and ice, milk or milk-like substance, mint, and cacao nibs. I had one just this morning, so if it's hot where you are, and it probably is, uh, consider adding mudwater to your favorite smoothie. It's really delicious. To get fifteen percent off, go to mudwater.com slash Pod to support the show that's mudwtr.com use code darkhorsepod for 15 percent off
0: yes and i would point out that the uh, lion's mane mushrooms are now uh, an affordable ingredient because they're no longer harvested from the lion's mane mm. which was an expensive and dangerous process indeed so yes. all right fictional backstories of the products that you know and love our final sponsor this week is Hillsdale College. If you are a few years or decades out of school, thinking back and wondering what it is you learned, you are not alone. Maybe you wish you had taken more time to study topics that would be more meaningful to you, something lasting and profound. Join the club. Since ni- uh, no, not 19, 1844, Hillsdale College has been providing an education that focuses on freedom and character because they believe that, virtuous citis- that a virtuous citizenry is the best defense for liberty. And they have now taken some of their core classes and made them available online for free for anyone who wants to learn. Time and technology have changed a lot of things, but they have not changed basic fundamental truths about the world and our place in it. Hillsdale College's online courses range widely. There are several on the Constitution and on Congress, the Presidency, the Supreme Court. There are great books courses, uh, as well as those focusing on the works of C.S. Lewis, Mark Twain, Shakespeare, Jane Austen. There are history classes from ancient Christianity to the rise and fall of the Roman Republic to the Second World War, and even classes on math and logic from Euclid to modern geometry, and one on the great principles of chemistry. I should take that one. Over three million people have taken Hillsdale College's online courses, you could be next. There are 39 free courses to choose from. They're self-paced so you can start uh, whenever you want. In fact, you can start right now. It's everything you need all in one place with no long-term commitment. Learn when and where you want. Enroll now in Hillsdale's not-for-credit online courses program. It's free, it's fun, and it will change the way you understand our country, the world, and your place in it. Go right now to hillsdaleedu darkhorse to enroll there's no cost and it's easy to get started that's h-i-l-l-s-d-a-l-e dot e-d-u slash darkhorse to register hillsdale dot e-d-u slash
1: right. so apparently i'm going to start us off tonight 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 um, it's tonight where some of you are and where some of you are listening which isn't a thing but
0: it's tonight somewhere
1: um i'm going to start us off and i'm going to read uh some extended excerpts from a rather long piece that i published yesterday yesterday prompted by um a piece that i intended to write without having any idea what i was going to write when i went to two events in portland this last weekend um and i will stop Frequently, and have us interact over them. But uh, let me begin with just the very beginning of the piece so that uh, we are all up to speed as to what I am talking about. And if you would share my screen, Zach, uh, when you have a chance, that would be great. So, this piece is called You Go Girl in Dragon and in Pink. Outside on a hot summer night, people are milling, waiting for the show to begin. Young and old, black and white, middle aged straight couples, and clusters of gay men. Attractive young people and unattractive young people. People in various degrees of cosplay, the fashion choices include pink, everything, rainbow shorts, and a certain amount of black leather. The excitement is palpable. People have been waiting for this for a very long time. The next day, at a different venue, at a different show entirely, the only element missing is the black leather. I went to both events as an anthropologist, stepping into parts of American culture with which I had no prior experience. While anthropologists never want to call attention to their otherness, it is generally impossible to conceal the fact that you are other when you drop in from what might might as well be outer space. When I lived in Madagascar, where I was not anthropologist but biologist, I was the focus of endless attention. Children followed me, the bravest among them racing up to touch my skin and my hair, even the shy ones pointing and shouting vaza as I walked down the street. White person. It wasn't cruel, and it wasn't dangerous. They just had never seen anything like me before. They wondered what I was, as it was obvious to them that I wasn't the same as what they were. On a Saturday night in Portland, Oregon this week, I went to Keller Auditorium for the Work the World show put on by the juggernaut that is RuPaul's Drag Race. Unlike an actual anthropologist, I had, intentionally, come entirely unprepared. I had never seen, I have never seen, an episode of RuPaul's Drag Race. I barely know what it is, don't really know the conceit, certainly don't know the players, and most definitely do not know the culture that has bubbled up around it. I wanted to see the show without having heard anything in advance about what other people thought, and to see it as a standalone event. The next day, I went to see Barbie the movie. The similarities were striking. So let me just give a tiny bit of backstory here. Um, that's, you know, that's a backstory explaining why I didn't know anything about really either of these universes before walking into them, but I, uh, (laughs) I do not know what's happening on the screen at the moment. Um, Uh, I'm going to start over. The backstory is, I love live theater, and I was going to be finding myself in Portland for a couple of days. And uh, whenever I am going to be in a city at this point, I look for the live theater that's going to be out there. And there was really nothing this time. The only thing that I found in looking through the listings was RuPaul's Drag Race. Work the world. W-E-R-K. Work the world. And I looked at it, and I clicked off of it, and I looked at it again, I thought, you know, that actually sounds like that could be research. I have no idea, actually, what this is, and I do suspect that the juggernaut, as I call it in the piece, uh, that is RuPaul's Drag Race, uh, helped bring in some of what we are experiencing in the world right now, including, as I talk about later in the piece, uh, what seems to be an ever- Ever-graying boundary between drag and trance, which, of course, when when drag was out there in the 60s and the 70s, we were assured it was a totally different thing. Uh, so I bought the ticket, and it was with some apprehension that I, you know, forced myself to go. I bought the ticket. I was going to go. I went alone, uh, and. Before I went, though, I thought, because I, like everyone else who is not uh, under a cultural rock at the moment, has just been blasted with the Barbie media blitz, right? And I thought, these two things might have a lot more in common than, uh, than I know. So without looking into anything more than what you're just exposed to walking around in the world with regard to Barbie, I went to the two things. And what I write about here, of course, is the cultural anthropologist's Sort of, you know, participant observation, in this case, not really participant observation, but, you know, observation of, of cultures not your own. Um, but it also emerges from an ethos that we have talked about a lot, that we've written about, indeed, in a piece called Don't Look It Up. Uh, so many years ago, we went to a, a conference, at uh, Colorado College on field studies, and gave a talk and then wrote an, uh, an article um, stemming from that talk about the virtues of, of ignorance of naivete, and um, about the virtues, therefore, of field studies, uh, especially field studies in places without a good cell connection or the internet, so that you can um, have questions bubble up. You can point out things uh, like giant rocks in the middle of nowhere and, and say to students, where'd that come from? What's that about? What do you think? What's going on? And in, you know, in the last 20 years, of course, it's become second nature for almost everyone to go like, let me look, it up. let me see. I'm sure that someone has already asked that question and will have an answer. Um, but as we have written about as I say, extensively and talked about, um, there is often a lot more learning to happen if you go in relatively naive and let the experience happen to you, let the questions happen to you without knowing much in advance. So that was uh, sort of the background for why I chose to uh, attend both of these things without knowing much.
0: Can I add a little color there? Um, So one of the, this is uh, a topic we've come at multiple different ways. Basically, at one level, reinventing the wheel has taken on a uh, a bad rap. Reinventing the wheel suggests that you've wasted your time. Right. Whereas in an educational context, the fact that something has already been settled by somebody actually provides an extra benefit. And uh, in the case of our primary example in Don't Look It Up... Um, we have a debate that raged in geology over much of the 20th century, starting in 1922, finally being completed in 1978, where a renegade geologist named J. Harlan Bretz had argued that the mainstream understanding of the Scablands of eastern Washington was, must be incorrect that he could see things about the evidence that were simply inconsistent with the idea that this had been formed over extremely long periods of time by gradual erosion like the uh, like the Grand Canyon. Now the point is, you can show students the evidence that he saw without spending the many years he took to see it. And then you can lead them through the exercise of thinking about what it might mean. And then you can talk about what is now known. And the point is, for a student in the matter in a matter of hours to be able to make some of the progress that took decades to be made in the real world, and then not to have to say, "Well, we'll never know," or "It'll take years before we're going to find out," and to say, "Well, actually, we can check your work right now because since you didn't look it up, we now have your work and we can compare it to what geology did over many, many, uh, many years." So it, it and,
1: is, and now you know a lot more about how to think. Now you've experienced the process of working through evidence and uh, going down paths that turned out not to be fruitful or not to be true, and uh, and you know maybe hopefully actually did indeed replicate some of the thinking that has happened in the past. You did in fact come close to reinventing probably not the wheel because that was a big one, but you know <laughs> reinventing some smaller things that have happened, and it you know it begins to unravel, and you know this is explicitly about. Uh, science really but it begins to unravel the lie that is textbooks right especially science textbooks which present science as a unfailingly linear process and you know the scientific process which is you know which is a cycle not a line but even that suggests an order that always must happen and you know we are emphatic that you absolutely must have a hypothesis before you take data, else the numbers that you have are not actually data because they haven't been um, generated as a test of anything. However, uh, the scientific process in general, in which observation precedes hypothesis, precedes data collection, precedes analysis, precedes uh, the dissemination of those results, precedes uh, the generation of more hypotheses, repeat, 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 um, has all sorts of branches off of it. And it rarely goes smoothly like that. Right? Not
0: only is it nonlinear, but it puts the focus in the correct educational place. The idea that education is a place where you accumulate facts that you will go on to wield, is uh, it was always pointless. But it's especially pointless in an era where we have access to the facts for free you don't need somebody to show them to you yeah then they're now controversial but anyway the point is it's not you're not in college to write papers that will matter the likelihood that you will is pretty low right what you are in college to do is to learn how to think and learning how to think by traversing some route that people have traversed before you that took a very long time it is a and it's an accelerant, right? You are learning the lessons that took them decades to learn in the course of hours. What more could you want? So reinventing yeah. the wheel is a special opportunity.
1: It is. And I mean, I, I encourage, with regard, to, with, with regard to the cultural anthropology, I encourage everyone to do this. You know, we have um, our friend Jordan Hall, actually, um, from before we were actively trying to, uh, was adamant. Um, that you need to go into the media sources that um, you are certain are not, uh, do not share your, your values, your beliefs, your, your preconceived ideas about what is happening in the world. You need to do that because that is the corrective to whatever the media um, that shares your bias will be giving you.
0: Yeah, actually, uh, Eric recommended this to me as a kid. He, mm. In fact, he, I remember mm. his examples precisely. I was a very nature-oriented kid, and he said, you need to spend a little time uh, reading uh, Field and Stream, right? You need mm-hmm. to understand how this looks from a hunter's perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he was absolutely right. Yeah. You, you know, you do find out that the, the, the folks you think you don't agree with are not the caricatures you've been told they are.
1: Right, yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's an interesting example. That's not nearly as far afield as... Um you know, the political examples that, that Jordan was giving us. But, um, but it's absolutely true uh, that if you are interested in conserving nature, uh, it is, it's hard to find a more adamant and informed bunch than those who go, who spend hours, days, weeks in nature um, with a fishing rod or a rifle in their hand, yep. uh, who, who are feeding themselves and their families that way. Um I have not actually figured out which which pieces to read and which to skip. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna do this little piece here. So that's all sort of set up, and then I, mostly I'm gonna focus on the the Barbie part of this. Can you
0: answer a question for me yeah. first, though? I yeah. may not be the only person with it, or maybe I am. Yeah. Uh, as little as you knew about uh, RuPaul's Drag Race, yeah. I may know even less. Okay. Is it a television? Pro- I mean, I've heard the term RuPaul's Drag Race.
1: It's yeah. It's a it's a, I I think it is probably correctly referred to as a reality TV show. Um, uh, At least that's how I understand it now, having seen um, just a, basically the show. Maybe maybe I should just read this. (laughs) Um, uh, Everything has become a spectacle. Before showtime at the Keller Auditorium, the music is intense, booming, distorted, at least this close to the stage in the shadow of massive speakers. Beams of red light sweep over the crowd and the giant screen is digital drag dystopia on endless repeat. Finally the show starts, a short high energy dance number with a dozen drag queens, people wearing personas that are known by a large fraction of the audience. So that's the thing, like it seemed like most of the audience knew all the drag queens who showed up, so they'd been on past seasons. I think there's like 14 or 15 seasons of RuPaul's Drag Race. So they've been on past seasons, they were crowd they were Favorites or not, I do not even know. But, you know, people cheered when these people came out, when the drag queens came out. They were clearly known by the audience. These queens are famous, but they're famous in the way of all reality TV stars, famous for being famous and for some exaggerated aspects of their personalities. The show is primarily a series of dance numbers, most with a single central drag queen plus six accessory dancers, two women and four men. The accessory dancers are excellent at what they do and they work hard. Hopefully the gig pays well. Most modern dance doesn't, I think, involve quite so much twerking and writhing and grabbing of crotches. Whenever a new act comes on stage, the audience screams in ecstasy like so many teenage girls. Some of the drag queens have moves, to be sure. A few of them are beautiful even, at least from this distance. Asia, our host for the evening, is among them. But the audience screams especially hard for the obese drag queens. The obese drag queens have rolls of fat, and when they jiggle their fat suggestively, the audience roars its approval. When they grab their own crotches, they get more screams. When they make suggestive movements with their tongues, more screams. and one of them, improbably and impressively, does the splits, the response is nearly ear-shattering. Other than that one move, though, the obese drag queens demonstrate little in the way of skill. And yet they are adored. After intermission, two amateur drag queens are brought on stage from the audience. They are going to lip-sync for your life. It's a competition, which the audience will judge. The first queen is polished and immaculately put together with tall black boots so elaborate that Asia comments on them approvingly. He's a tall, leggy Brazilian with long, perfectly straight blonde hair. He sort of he does this drag queen flip of the hair that uh, I sort of think I associate with drag queens, even though I'm not sure I've ever seen a drag show. Um, He's got perfectly straight, long blonde hair um, and lip syncs well to a song he didn't know was coming. He also knows how to move. The second amateur drag queen they pulled up on stage does not have the moves and mostly fails to lip-sync at all while jiggling his bits. He is also obese. And what he has, in addition to his fat, is the presumption that people will love him. He is right. They do. The audience overwhelmingly gives him the win. Objectively, he wasn't nearly as good as the first guy, but that presumes that I understand what the game is. Clearly, I do not. The obese amateur drag queen does know the game, though, and plays it well. Or rather, he works it. He does it so well that I know his name, Charisma with a K, but do not know the name of the more skillful queen who lost. The game, I guess, is about being something so loud and so brash that others will fall all over themselves to demonstrate their adoration of you. Loudness and brashness and simply not being as you're expected to be is now sufficient to earn adulation, if you choose to claim that ground. It's a way of telling the system off without having to have any clarity about what the system is or why you're angry at it in the first place. Charisma with a K earns a solid you-go-girl vibe from the audience. You go, girl, would seem to be a statement of female empowerment. I'm not convinced. It seems to me, at best, to be a celebration of that which is immutable, those things that you did not earn and did nothing to change. At worst, it's a celebration of poor choices and unfortunate outcomes. So, (laughs) I don't know how you're looking at me. (laughs) It's a thoroughly
0: disturbing picture that you paint. Mm -hmm. Um, And especially, I mean, I know that this is the the subject of your essay, but um, it is especially disturbing in light of the, uh, the preposterous conversation, the sophistry surrounding transness, and even more so uh, having this take place in Portland, where everyone at least overtly is so thoroughly uh, believing of um, these incredible claims. So anyway... I, the
1: newly elected governor of Portland no the newly elected governor of oregon tina Kotek, um, i have seen has just i don't know if it, she has proposed or has managed to push through i sincerely hope not uh that children as young as 15 should be allowed to get trans-affirming health care without consent or knowledge of their parents so sh- Tina Kotek never would have been elected uh, without Portland. The rest of the state doesn't buy into this crap. Uh, Eugene, I guess, but um, but Oregon is a is a big Western state with one massive city, and it's not even that massive, but one one big city, and um, <clears throat> the ethos, um, the statewide ethos, is becoming the Portland ethos, and um, that fits very well with what seems to be happening in the audience at this at this work the world show uh a complete abandonment of 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 reality i guess and and the idea and you know that wasn't the most surprising thing i saw i'll get to that um but the but the idea that drag which i've never liked the idea of like never uh that even even though i love david bowie Right, and I'm remembering the movie Victor Victoria. Must be from the early '80s with Julie Andrews playing a down on her luck um, act performer of some sort. Who uh, I th- I think the conceit of the film is she goes in drag to perform, but then she's in dra- then she furthermore puts on a female. Um,
0: she plays a man playing a woman.
1: Right, um, and and. It reveals this, you know, this onionness of of human identity and personality, and what you what your eye thinks and what your brain thinks, and what you can, you know, how you know to what degree does it matter? Um, but it's never there's never a confusion there, and Bowie was never confused, um, right. About fact, you know what what the character actually is.
0: These were conscious attempts to play on. Um gender roles, take that term to be prior to the current battle over them. These were conscious. Nobody was trying to fool anybody. Um, And it's interesting. You know, the mind is strange in this regard. So I don't know how many, what percentage of straight men I speak for here. I'll speak for myself, but I would bet that this is uh, largely resonant. A woman wearing a man's shirt can be very sexy. A woman wearing a mustache, horrifying. Right. It's like, why does the mind distinguish between these two things? And so anyway, an intelligent person like David Bowie playing on these tropes is revealing things about your own construction. Um, And, you know, they are things worth knowing. He
1: never thought he actually was Ziggy Stardust. Right. It was a character.
0: Yeah, exactly. So um, that uh, there in throughout history and prehistory, presumably there will be uh, intentional uh, playing on tropes, um, which is very different than attempts to uh, mislead. And of course, all of cinema, all of fiction, right? you know, is in some sense people, you know, you walk in there with a suspension of disbelief and you accept that these characters are who they say they are.
1: Yeah. And I guess in some ways, um, your suspension of disbelief requires Like, you can't be asked to continually suspend your disbelief over and over and over and over again on multiple different topics, right? The You know, a fictional world that you want to immerse yourself in, that the filmmaker or the writer is asking you to immerse yourself in, is welcoming you into, um, will only work if you suspend your disbelief sort of once. It could be at a global level. It couldn't be about everything, right? But once. Your brain can't continually be being called you know repeatedly called to like wait what was that what's going on you can't you can't
0: be asked to increase the level of suspension repeatedly without breaking the illusion
1: and you know i I talk later in this film um about uh later in this piece piece about a film from 1974 a surrealist film from called the phantom of liberty um and maybe, maybe i'll maybe i'll end up reading this whole thing but um in which, you know, a lot of European new wave cinema in the 60s, 70s uh, was explicitly playing with social norms. And great, but I think many of the thinkers in that era, and of course this is the same era that we get a lot of the originators of actual postmodernism, made the mistake of imagining that if some social norms are both culturally created and past their sell-by date, then all social norms must be culturally created and pass their sell by date. And that's not true. That, that, is, that is, a, it is a false conclusion, and it may be fundamental to the whole error of postmodernism. Like you can be right. Like you can be right about some of these critiques, that language can help create social norms and that the, you know, and that the panopticon that we're living in is not good for most of us, right? But that doesn't mean that your insight applies universally to everything that humans have ever done and that's the world we're now living in so obese drag queens like obese drag queens that don't appear to have any skill by the you know and i i admit freely like i don't know what the game is i don't know you know what they think they are doing but to have two amateur queens get up on stage and have one of them look to me like i remember drag queens looking and uh and he looks compelling and to have the audience overwhelmingly through their, through their votes with, with cheers at the end, vote for the guy who couldn't even lip sync. And that was what the game was said it was to be about. What is it then? What are, what is it that we are being asked to buy into it? The whole thing. And again, I say this later in the piece, the whole thing feels like a dare, like call me out on this, call me out. And the fact is most of us who aren't into this aren't looking at all and then a lot of us who are looking at it are going like wait what did i miss like no no no. you know what just like just like when i would when when i had students who didn't have much background in science and i would insist that they were reading the primary literature right but i didn't give them textbooks you're going to be reading the primary literature well i can't assess that you're going to learn how to and they come to me and say oh, just i don't understand it and sometimes they didn't understand it because they didn't have the background very often they didn't understand it because it was written terribly and was written to confuse because a lot of the scientific literature, like a lot of the technical literature everywhere is written by someone who has something to hide, doesn't really know what they're talking about and doesn't really want to be called out on anything that is in what they are putting out there. And so just you know, giving students appropriate, not inappropriate, but appropriate confidence to say, actually, this conclusion here does not follow from the evidence that you have laid out, and that's on you, not me. That's a you problem, not a me problem. This scientific paper is not good. Like, I feel like that's the framing with which we should all be looking at things like, why did the obese drag queen win? Now, the stakes seem like they're lower here. But maybe not, because I feel like everywhere we're going now in society, we're being told, oh, yeah, yeah, A looks to you like it's better than B in every regard, but B is winning. We're like, what? Why? So You've given me no evidence.
0: I, I mean, I think you, you're you calling attention to exactly the right question, and it doesn't really matter that this is low stakes. In fact, it could be zero stakes, because the real point is that it is diagnosing yep. the audience. That's yep. the really important thing, okay? Yep. Um, and. What I wrote down here is the game is the game more broadly than RuPaul's Drag Race is suspend your disbelief or else. That's what we are being told.
1: But not just suspend your disbelief or else, suspend your disbelief. And now another thing, and another thing, and another thing. It's like the progressive stack meets suspend your disbelief. And oh, now it's uh, now you got to be disabled, or else we don't love you. Now so, you got to, you know, now you got to be obese, or we don't love you. Now whatever it is. But right? I
0: think this 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 proves the point because yeah. when you go to a movie, right, and when they cause when they say we are living in a magical realm and people cast spells and those spells have consequences for reasons we're not going to explain. That's the level at which you suspend your disbelief, Um, and then they up the level of disbelief to something. uh, You know, they invent uh, a character to explain some error that they've made earlier in the story, right? Mm -hmm. And the point is, well, now I just I have fallen out of the belief that I create the disbelief uh yes. state which I had suspended. Yes. And you've broken the illusion, you've broken character in the middle of the thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm no longer on board. So I don't know what it costs to go to a movie these days, but you've wasted my money.
1: Yeah. 12, 13 bucks. Suspend
0: your yeah. disbelief or else is about something else. It's about safety, right? You're going to suspend your disbelief. This is a threat. The yeah. threat is if you cannot suspend your disbelief about men turning into women, you're a problem and you're you're going to end up on the wrong end of this mob. Right? So mm-hmm. How do you explain an audience... And it's a bunch
1: of men and women face who are going to come at you.
0: Right. So how do you explain a Portland audience signing up to go see this thing and then voting for a much lesser, a much less compelling version to win a competition that is ostensibly about being more compelling? What this is, is an opportunity to virtue signal. I'm better at suspending my disbelief than you are. And so the point is, it is the threat that they feel... That is causing them to embrace the least compelling version. To prove, even in that case, oh, that looks like a woman to me.
1: But I mean, it's also true that, and I did not. I did not talk in this piece about what I saw in the audience. Um, you know, there's a there's a lot that I saw and I thought, and uh, that, that, it, that did not end up here. Um, but as you might imagine, uh, the crowd had some. Uh, beautiful and compelling people in it uh, including for instance some guys who looked like they walked out of the Castro in the 1980s like some some just fabulous gay guys really really built wearing like black leather and you know like could have been the village people right uh, but it also had the you know 2010's 2020s version of this the woke brigade the you know the so-called queer community if you will which, large, these people do not look healthy, right? It's, you know, people are, you know, very doughy, very pale, you know, lots of artificial color on their skin and their hair and such. And, um, some elaborate costuming, which, you know, okay, but often not just kind of dingy clothes and doughy, both affect and physique. And at some level, I think that people have become convinced That to aspire is somehow shaming those who haven't done better. And so by voting for the obviously less compelling, less skillful, and less attractive person, they are both affirming who they are and not, you know, fat shaming, beauty shaming, you know, all of these things, which is actually just code for... Uh, if you are fit and healthy and look good, you don't get to talk about it because I'm in charge now and I don't have health. I don't have beauty. I don't apparently, you know, often don't have much going on at all, but I've declared that I'm in charge and somehow a lot of people are buying into it.
0: Well, there's a, a generalized theme across multiple things that we have talked about, uh, in the last couple of years. You've got a population that is, by whatever mechanism, actually being sabotaged in its attempt to do what people used to do automatically, try to look good, try to uh, be strong, to have virtuous characteristics, to Mm -hmm. um, be capable to achieve things in the marketplace, uh, you know. Now, You can make all kinds of critiques about that system and how well it works, how fair it actually is, what you do about the fact that people are often hobbled through no fault of their own. But when you have a large fraction of the population that is, let's say, uh, obese because of factors that they've never been able to identify, you know, Mm -hmm. impurities in their food uh, jobs that cause them to be sedentary, light regimes that cause them to misunderstand what part of the year they're in, who knows what the factors that contribute to such a thing might be. But when you have people who know that there is no switch they can flip, there's nothing they can do, they are just simply in this state, then of course, an attack on the idea of better and worse sounds appealing. Wouldn't it be great if I just didn't feel awful, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess it's not either or. So, you know, you, you and I, um, <clears throat> to the chagrin of some uh, mostly right of center people, uh, correctly point out how much of the obesity epidemic is actually about conditions and parameters that happen to people when they are children and don't have any choice in the matter, and that it is very, very hard to fully undo those things. Maybe impossible to fully undo those things. However, you can begin making different choices now, and everyone should begin making different choices now if they are uh, unhealthy.
0: Oh, of course I'm not arguing against that. But the problem is that that uh, pattern that people should adopt is one that requires uh, an extreme taste for delayed gratification, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. That there, there's no set of choices you can make today that are gonna have you feeling substantially different by this evening. Right. So the point is, you're talking about changing patterns of behavior that over the course of years of dedication will result in improvement. And who knows how much. Some people achieve great things in this way, but it's really, really difficult. And so all I'm saying is that there's a siren song on the rocks. And the siren song says that, you know what, the whole set of notions that we grew up with, that some people are more beautiful than others, that some people achieve more because they're more capable than others, all of that was nonsense. It was an excuse. And the problem is that that's not total bullshit, right? There's an awful lot of rent-seeking that makes people rich. Did those people contribute more? Is that why they're rich? No, some of them, not at all. Some of them are rich and...
1: Some of them are explicitly and only parasitic.
0: Right, many of them are only parasitic. Some of them... Uh, actually did something that accounts for 15% of their extraordinary wealth, mm. and the rest of it was the result of rent-seeking. That's not uncommon. Yep. So the point is, for those who are not in a position to do anything to control their trajectory, they're basically planktonic. They're drifting through the economy. <laughs> they're drifting through their busy Planktonic
1: rent-seekers. Well, yes. they're, plankton- yes. they're not
0: even in a position to seek rent. But, <laughs> but the point is, for the, for the person who is helpless, because yeah. they just didn't, they weren't born into circumstances where they had the resources to do it, And they've been, you know, bombarded with chemicals that are misinforming them and school didn't help and all of this stuff. The idea that maybe it was all bullshit all along. There's an awful lot of bullshit. Maybe it's just all bullshit. Yeah. Right. That that is very appealing.
1: That actually fits. um, I'm going to I don't think that fits with the next section, but that uh, we are going to come back to that. Mm -hmm. Um, let, Let me let me read the next section. Sure. Uh, you can show my screen here, um, and at the top is a picture of one of the, um, one of the drag queens uh, who was at the show, Mistress Isabel Brooks. This was the crowd favorite. Um, In Barbie Land 2, everything is spectacle. It's a movie so pink it caused a global shortage of pink paint. As with Work the World, I am neither the intended audience nor familiar with the universe from which the confection emerges. Once, when I was little, a well-intentioned family member who was unaware that I had no interest in dolls gave me a Barbie as a birthday present. She had loved her Barbies and assumed that I would too. I put the box politely aside and never saw the thing again. That said, much of the movie is entertaining and fun. Not deep, but not dark, but then it doesn't pretend to be either. Problem is, it sneaks in a whole lot of wrong, and people accepting wrong things because pop culture sold it to them with popcorn and a Coke is part of how we got to the very dark place we are in today. First, drag was sold to us as some sort of post-feminist fetish, and now, so is Barbie. Barbie the Movie begins with a remake of the opening scene from Kubrick's 1968 masterpiece 2001 A Space Odyssey. Instead of a monolith paving the way for apes to become conscious space-traveling humans, we have Barbie as harbinger of a whole new world for girls. I thought that Barbie's impossible measurements and laughably absurd list of achievements were demeaning to women, not aspirational, but the beginning of this movie would have me believe that I've got it wrong. Apparently, Barbie is the feminist icon we've all been waiting for. Mid-film, the Kens take control of Barbie land and convince most of the Barbies to do the Kens bidding. Margot Robbie's appropriately gorgeous, stereotypical Barbie has her dream house stolen and turned into a mojo dojo casa house, a real bro palace. Understandably, she falls into a funk, which manifests as lying face down on the floor, a few of her golden locks slightly out of place. In answer to the question of why she is immune to the brainwashing that has turned the rest of the Barbies into Ken accessories, stereotypical Barbie moans, either you're brainwashed or you're weird and ugly. There is no in between. Fantastic. So th- this does fit. This isn't This isn't exactly where you ended with with what you were riffing on, but this does fit with the the conclusion from many who have been betrayed, feel betrayed, and many of them have been betrayed by a world that did not offer up what it promised. They, and this again is a point that I have made many times before, they find binaries where there aren't any, and they reject the binaries, the few binaries that actually exist in the world, right? Like male and female is a binary, sorry, it's not going anywhere. Um, But either you're brainwashed or you're weird and ugly, what a horrifying vision. And, you know, this is stereotypical Barbie in a funk and, of course, not looking weird or ugly at all. She's got a few locks out of place, right? Um, so, you know, there there is a bit of a spoof here, but um, Weird Barbie, played by Kate McKinnon, uh, responds to that with something like, oh, don't I know it? So you know we're thought we're we're simultaneously supposed to understand like oh this is a joke we know this isn't true but then also be told um, by the character that we're kind of rooting for because she's she's the weird one whose kid in the real world has cut off her hair and put marker on her face um, that you know she she knows some stuff about life and yeah it's true it's true stereotypical bar- stereotypical Barbie Barbie you were brainwashed and now you're never gonna be again and uh, and too bad for you
0: well i I hate to say this because i don't i don't like the world that it suggests, but the conservative trope about the ugliness of liberals um, reflected in what Barbie says here uh, would fit rather well with the idea that we've been developing over the course of weeks that there is something about the uh, hemorrhage of um, antipathy for success that we see on the blue team, right? That the, the attack on those, the, the reason that you end up on that team, what I, I'm not sure I'm happy I called team loser, but it does seem to be uh, an accumulation of people who are rebelling against the idea of merit and success yeah. because they're not in shooting distance, Right.
1: Okay. So I, I do see that and it's unfortunate. I don't like it either. Um, I think it's true, but you know, there's, there's at least one giant caveat here, which is that, um, at least as I've understood it in the past, and I don't know that it has changed, the conservative version of female beauty has been a, an artifact it's been a fiction it's been highly made up highly dysfunctional i mean it's it's been a, a barbie like thing right like the you know the the conservative talk show hosts and such um look like they wouldn't know begin to know what to do with a screwdriver if you hand it to them right yep. like they just they have would have no idea and you know the heels the nails you know makeup doesn't uh inherently impair your ability to do anything um but you know, everything about it is, you know, woman as accessory. And uh, in like now, I think you're right. There's so much embrace of unhealthiness. Yeah. Of, you know, fat is beautiful. You know, all of these things are, are just in being embraced by Team Loser, if you will. Um, but there are plenty of beautiful women on the left who don't look like those conservative icons look because they we refuse mostly to put on heels and make our hands non-functional by having long nails and the fragile. you know, that fragile incompetent, you know, from fragile you get to and probably incompetent because how would you become competent if you were always dressed in a way that you couldn't possibly get anything done? So, so, you know, that's a giant caveat to a point that I think is basically true.
0: Well, so I, I want to flesh out this picture a little bit. One thing I I disagree with you slightly on makeup is not um doesn't get in the way of doing things for the following reason well
1: it doesn't in the way of heels or long nails
0: right it does not physically impede your ability to do things but the time necessary to do makeup properly is hobbling sure there's opportunity cost you know let's just say that you know conspicuous consumption is what it is that the, the meaning of long painted nails that are easily broken is absolutely transparent right the point is i do not my value does not come from working with my hams
1: well and and so, and makeup like the color on the nails uh reveals if you have you know made an error and gone and done anything it's like oh my nails chipped i must have you know done something physical in the world
0: right I, so anyway that is what it is it comes from where it comes from and it doesn't have to mean the same thing in modern times but that is where it obviously began yeah um the funny thing, or the tragic thing here, is as we've discussed, the West did really well actually freeing women to participate fully in the creative dynamic parts of civilization. We succeeded in this really well, Mm -hmm. right? You find women are, I don't know what the exact percentages are, but they've reached parity and in some cases exceeded it in graduate school, in medical school, in law school. The point is women have gained the, they have gained agency over how their time will be spent. And that is a major achievement in a short period of time.
1: Just asterisk. Note that your examples, and they aren't the only examples to be had, but your examples all involved. School and this, unfortunately, um, you know, this is a downstream effect that presumably, uh, the dudes in charge around the turn of the last century, uh, from the 1800s to the 1900s, never imagined when it was, you know, women being shunted into sort of school teacher roles. Like, well, uh, now we have school that's really not particularly good for boys and men, and and here we are.
0: Well, look, I, I of course, agree with all of that, but yeah. but the basic point is, look, did we achieve perfection on the sex and gender front no but did we make shocking levels of gains in a shockingly short period of time we absolutely did Mm -hmm. and you know many of the the you know let's take megan kelly for an example Mm. megan kelly is lovely she's wonderful she's wonderful she is high achieving incredibly intelligent she does have that kind of um I don't know.
1: No, she's she's wonderful.
0: I'm not saying she's not wonderful. What I'm saying <laughs> yeah. is that the the picture you painted of um, you know conservative um, anchor women, right? All I'm saying is her, beauty but... standards mm-hmm. over in that quadrant are simultaneously accurate in some sense with respect to uh, human perceptions. Of course, some of that is downstream of culture that sets those standards, but. Objectively beautiful people, um, but you know, Megyn Kelly is not asking to go back to the kitchen. She is right. a, a high achieving career woman and fighting fiercely on a stage that used to only include men.
1: I think the example of using anchors, which I raised first, is is the wrong one because anyone in front of making a living in front of a camera is going to be made up, and you can't see the heels, but you can kind of infer them. Yep. Um, walking around the world. Uh, what is more often true of conservative young women versus liberal young women 20 years ago, 30 years ago, uh, was that the conservative young women were more likely uh, to, be, to be made up to look like dolls. Right. Right. And uh, even then, you know, now it's unfortunately increasingly true. But even then, the conservatives were saying, ah, liberals are ugly. It's like, no, we don't have makeup on. What you're seeing is a farce. What you're seeing is a mask. Do you want a mask or do you want a person?
0: Right. Um, But the question then with respect to the two events that you attended, Mm -hmm. I think, and I think, I don't want to paint it too cleanly because it's obviously really broken in one way, Mm -hmm. but I see two failure modes, right? One of these is the blue team failure mode in which, uh, you know, sex and gender are the invention of something oppressive and we're going to play with every trope and what's more, an ugly person is beautiful if we say so and we'll all cheer to prove that we accept this, all of that. The other is some, you know, Barbie is not you know, an ivory girl, she's not girl next door, right? This is, in some ways, a conservative view of what feminine beauty is supposed to be. And in its own way, deeply troubling for that reason, because it does not include the achievements that women have made in uh, participating. Well, in But that's
1: not true. Right. So I mean, Mattel has been rebranding Barbie since the beginning. So like, I mean,
0: no, no, the, uh, I I understand that the achievements
1: that. are part of the Barbie juggernaut now.
0: Right, of course they, they are. Of course are. they are. It, but...
1: but it's part of what makes the whole thing so demeaning, right? It's like you spend an hour this morning looking like that, and you're a Nobel Prize winner.
0: <laughs> like that's right. not a
1: thing. It's and you're how old? And you're the president? Like it's it's just incoherent. It's, and it's kind of like remember that doll? Like math is hard. Was that a Barbie? I don't even remember if that was know. a Barbie. But there was some. There was some kerfuffle, legitimate kerfuffle, uh, where some doll company put out a doll that you could pull a string in her back and and uh, the girl doll said, math is hard. I'm like, oh, for fuck's sake, sorry. But like, like this, this it, is, it is it, a- it's just reifying all of the things.
0: I agree. Right? It is achievement as affectation, which is offensive. Yeah. Okay? So there's no question in my mind that what you saw at the RuPaul drag race thing was a, you know, imagine a bowling alley. There are two gutters you can end up in. One of them is the Portland dystopia uh, where sex and gender is an invention of the patriarchy and we're uninventing it because that's what's liberating and all of that. And the other is something that is happening over in conservative space, which is a, in my opinion ham-fisted defense of more traditional feminine tropes. And the real point is, actually, neither of these things work. Yep. Nobody rational, I think, wants women back in the kitchen, right, taking a secondary role in civilization. There's no, The gains we have made are not only really important from the point of view of okay. women, but they've just been important to planet Earth.
1: But just as you were talking about, I think, last week with regard to uh, what you were calling Nazi Twitter, uh, you know, those voices, those those people who do want women to be in the kitchen and nowhere else except the bedroom uh, are getting more and more vocal and, you know, more and more. um,
0: Well, that's that's the thing. In the absence of a coherent, forward looking program in which we acknowledge, hey, liberals were right about some stuff. You know what they were right about? That it was a really good idea for women to be liberated to do what women want to do. On the other hand, there were aspects of this that didn't work, right? The sexual revolution had massive unintended consequences that we are now suffering from. And so we need some sort of new forward-looking mechanism for recovering the gains on what we did right and fixing what we did wrong and not going backward. And the problem is in the absence of that vision what you have is pick your dystopia, right? Is it Barbie dystopia or is it RuPaul dystopia? And I don't think RuPaul is inherently dystopia, right? RuPaul is old enough that RuPaul was traditional drag, which sure was never my thing either. But the point is, is there any harm really in guys dressing up as women and, you know, parading themselves in front of an audience? I don't know, but, I think the harm was Well,
1: I guess increasingly. Um I do wonder how it is that we have arrived at a moment, a cultural moment where it is universally understood that blackface is wrong. Right. And it is univ- almost widely pushed that woman face is not just fine, but honorable. Yep. I increasingly do not see the difference.
0: Well, the problem here is that we have screwed up the blackface problem, right? Mm -hmm. Because it is such a flashpoint. The point is a prohibition against all blackface is Almost sensible now it becomes not sensible when we talk about the character Roger in right. um in uh, Mad Men who has to put on blackface to portray a prior world in which blackface was a thing, right. but the problem is minstrel show is inherently mocking of black people right that's the reason that blackface has the well, connotation that I it haven't does. just
1: been in a drag show, bro yep, I would say that drag show is inherently mocking of women uh, that's 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 the position I'm arriving at so This,
0: this is this, I agree. But the point is, even buried within the question of drag versus trans, the problem is we know trans people who adopt the demeanor of the other sex and they do not do so disrespectfully. And then we know others who do so disrespectfully. And that. I guess my point is you can't make a rule based on whether or not somebody is respectful or not, because how would, you, how would you be able to establish it one way or the other, which is why we get into these false binaries. But there are at least two motivations there.
1: Let me read. I'm, I'm not going to end up reading the whole thing, but I've got two more sections. Sure. Let me read the first of the short of the two sections. While feminism is getting a facelift over in Barbie land, RuPaul's Drag Race is playing at the boundary between drag and trans. These are men dressing as women, not men who think they are women, right? Right? Sometimes it's not particularly clear. Some of the RuPaul drag queens my scant post-event googling revealed have indeed come out as trans. The distinction is whether the caricature of womanhood that they are creating and displaying is one that they feel like taking off at the end of the day. Drag didn't used to be confused about this. But Barbie the movie seems perfectly happy to add to the confusion. In Barbie land, woman is a costume to begin with. Upon arriving at a meeting of Mattel executives, stereotypical Barbie despairs at the lack of women in the C-suite. I'm a man with no power, offers the intern in attendance. Does that make me a woman? Well, no, Aaron. it does not. In both the drag and Barbie confections, the focus is on surface appearances and illusions, the clothes, the makeup, the hair. In Barbie land, many other things become fashion accessory as well, the house, the job, the man. And in both, womanhood itself is a costume, something to be taken on and off at will. One of the Barbies in the film is played by a trans woman, and so the farce is complete. I got the role because I fit the role, explains Hari Neff. To be honest, I don't look much different in the movie than the Barbies that I had when I was a kid. Barbie is an impossible fantasy. Her phenotype obtainable only through a combination of obsessive focus on how you look and plastic surgery. At least with drag, you don't need the surgery.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded, I mean, this, the whole world is so polluted by advertising, but I'm reminded of a Dove campaign from years ago in which they actually showed what it took to take a model and turn her into the thing that one sees in an advertisement. And the answer was, it actually is physically beyond the capacity of an earth woman to be what is often presented in advertising. And it requires Photoshop and the stretching of necks and the reproportioning of things to take even an attractive woman. And, uh, you know, an arms race has, has unfolded. Yep. And the the problem, you know, somewhere... So next up, Anime. Right. Somewhere I mean, law lost...
1: stretch bits. And I mean right. as soon as, as, right soon as it's are. an
0: avatar and the point is, well, yeah. what are you really into? It doesn't have to be connected to reality. Right. Right. So
1: are you like that? You want more of that? We can give you more of that.
0: Now, again, the connection to uh market forces is very troubling to me. Mm-hmm. But the idea that Ivory Girl was a trope that was resonant enough that Anybody our age knows what that means, right? The girl next door, that these were things that were understood not to be in conflict with beauty, right? This was a uh, reduction in dedication to artificial beauty yes. and an emphasis on natural beauty. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, in the world trapped between the two gutters of RuPaul's Drag Race and Barbie Land, what's lost is... A future in which women are not hobbled for hours a day, making sure they look just so, but they can in fact be human and do what humans do and it not be thought ugly.
1: Okay, one more section, Um, but before we go there, I will say that I'm I'm not reading a lot of this, including my analysis of the really unfortunate depiction of the relationships between the sexes in Barbie land. Um, the, the stuff between, uh, the Barbies and the Kens is, um, kind of diabolical actually. Uh, so, uh, please,
0: please go and, and read that here, but I feel like we've gone, uh, we've diabolical. And it is the thing, uh, that I believe is most inconsistent with the idea that Barbie land is in some sense, the conservative gutter, right? The depiction of the relation between the sexes, as I understand it from you, I haven't seen the film, but Mm -hmm. uh, is uh, much more of the postmodern anything goes left then no
1: no no not at all it's it's a it's it's either men rule or women rule and you can keep having men and women fight over who's who it's going to be you go barbie land kingdom barbie land um but you what you cannot absolutely cannot have is both sexes actually um having power at the same time
0: but isn't it uh uh anti-monogamy doesn't it
1: yes but that is not what you were just talking about no it is i mean Uh, Um, Anyway, it's yes. There's, there's, I don't think you quite have it right because I think that this piece, this is, it it feels very much like a unfortunate. It's like it's it's the stupid left response to the stupid right, where the stupid right is like men just need to be in charge 100 percent of the time, all the time. You see what happens when you let women start to get in charge. And the stupid left is going like, oh, well, maybe Barbie was possible after all. Maybe we can have a world in which there aren't even any male Supreme Court justices. And like those are our two options since when are those are two options? Anyway, I mean, I, I could read that part, but let me let me. I I think I'm not going to. I'm just going to read one more section here. Yep. Um, You can go ahead and show my screen. Uh, Just another little still from the uh, RuPaul's Drag Race. Um, Here we have um, Asia, the host with um, their back to the camera. um, Attractive, tall, curvy. uh, And uh, I have no idea how to pronounce this. Deja Sky, maybe. Um, The other fan favorite. uh, uh, Another absurd looking sort of caricature of... I don't know, the Disney princess? I don't even know what. Costume changes are a large part of both shows, of course, not just between acts, but during acts. It's magic meets fashion. Trusting your eyes and watching them fail you as again and again something new shows up underneath what you thought was the base layer. Humans as onions, the metaphor revealed through fashion. In Work the World, occasional big black conical breastplates are reminiscent of 1980s Madonna. The bouncing rolls of fat most definitely are not. Everything is sexual. Some of the sex is violent. The misogyny is sometimes stark. The word cunt, always spelled out rather than said as a word, is spat out several times. Why? Why does one drag queen ask another to look at your C-U-N-T? Is it disturbing just for the sake of being disturbing? Is this a dare? When not telling someone else to look at the genitalia they patently do not have, the drag queens are all about bringing the attention back to themselves. Look at me while I do nothing of note. Look at me while I work it. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. There are fantasy and Hollywood and Disney references throughout both of these concoctions. Oddly, the Matrix is invoked in both. On offer, Red Pill to wake up and have a challenging of difficult life, or Blue Pill to retain comfort and cluelessness. Barbie, as we would expect, wants the Blue Pill. She wants her high-heeled feet back after they've gone flat on her and for everything to go back to normal. But she doesn't get what she wants, and she's better for it. Red Pill for the win. Work the World is constructed to reveal the hive mind of the audience, and time and again, the audience says it wants the red pill. They are certain that they would choose to wake up to reality as ugly and uncomfortable as that might be. This may be the most surprising part of the night for me. Here is an audience so enmeshed in a fantasy scape that they are convinced not only that they are interested in being awake and in choosing reality over short-term pleasures, but that they have already awoken to reality. This feels like it may be... uh, a critical key and the most important thing here <laughs> that yeah, I was surprised. I mean, there's a lot of cultural references presumably that I didn't get in RuPaul's Drag Race, but many that I did and and many, many in Barbie from from Hollywood history and from film history, many of which I think I did get. Um, and that's, that's fun. That's good. But the fact that the Matrix shows up in both places is fascinating. And that it shows up in these, Confections, these concoctions that are so, that are presenting a vision of the world that is so dystopian and so farcical and so awful. And that in one of the cases, the audience has an ability to reveal what it is that they would choose if offered the choice on the matrix of the red pill versus the blue pill. And the audience makes it clear that they think they've been red pilled. And I don't like, it's amazing.
0: Well, I mean, this is going to link us into the next and that's the part phase of phase of this discussion. Yeah. But the uh, I'm in a losing battle for a very long period of time over the resurrection of the idea of red pill. It is such an important idea that the fact that we are losing it to Andrew Tate and RuPaul and whoever else, Barbie and Barbie, mm-hmm. um, is uh, it's a huge loss because, and uh, you know, as, as we've talked about uh, previously, the Matrix is effectively Plato's cave. Right? remade in a modern form, and Plato's Cave is a story that has to be represented regularly in order for people to understand the possibility of being uh, beguiled by a fiction, um, and there is a reality to be understood. I mean, Plato's Cave, the essential feature of it is that the person who has seen the outside world is not welcomed by his uh, compatriots in the cave he has killed, Right, The idea of an outside world that is actually real is so troubling that uh, he has ended. And we need this concept of red pill. And Mm -hmm. it does not belong to conservatives. It does not belong to any of the constituencies that would adopt it. It is not theirs. It is our common property. And I will say that the fact of the Wachowski brothers, now sisters, having produced the matrix having given us the red pill and now having confused the matter is uh you know it's like a knife to the heart right yeah and um i don't know what we do about it i guess both of them transitioned yeah i mean i don't know
1: so I, I, blood I'd is forgot, more I'd, confused I'd, than water.
0: I, I don't. I'd, I'd
1: forgotten that. So maybe that it partially explains why it ends up. But it RuPaul's may. Drag Race. It
0: may be why it ends up there. Um, and then the the Andrew Tate version of this is so troubling, also, um, because Andrew, you know, Andrew Tate is also not incorrect about a lot of what he observes about the world, but he is apparently based on. A tremendous amount of video that I've now seen of him saying, in his own words, you know, instructing men how to view women, and it's this—it is this parasitic view of women that they must be dominated, they must be abused, um, that this is the natural order of things, and it's just a—it's a horrifying uh, way of looking at it. So to have him using red pill as his, you know, central uh, his central metaphor is just very, very destructive. So, look, we are living in something shockingly Matrix-like, and we do need people red-pilled. And, you know, there's a lot of nuance that isn't in there. I I find myself talking to other people who see the world as we do and saying, don't forget, the most any of us is is half-awake right? It's not that we've been red-pilled and we see the world. We don't yet know what we don't yet know. Mm-hmm. And you and I keep discovering this. You know, As much as we are aware of all sorts of uh, malfeasance and skullduggery, we keep discovering stuff that we didn't miss because you ca- or okay. that we didn't see because yeah. you can't pay attention to it all at the same time. Right. Um, so anyway, it's, it's the red-pill moment. And of course, if it's the red-pill moment and you are an entity that is protected by the blue pill, then trivializing the red pill by putting it in Barbie's mouth or, you know, RuPaul's and everybody embracing it because they're the, you know, the cognizant uh, will turn it into nothing. It makes the metaphor useless and it means that we now are again, you know, grasping for for some, some way to convey to people that you haven't seen it yet because you're still inside the cave looking at the shadows on the wall
1: um the the scene in barbie where uh the stereotypical barbie is morose and doesn't know how to get her world back um and her her feet have literally fallen so instead of walking around like this uh she's she's got flat feet for the first time you know barbie dolls actually have the high heel feet you know this
0: i guess they would have to but
1: (laughs) right so um it's it's there's a suspension of disbelief that you can do to watch a good part of this movie and just be entertained. Yep. right? and um, and the acting is great, and the you know the production value is incredibly high. All of this, um, but so her she steps out of her shoes and her feet are still shaped like high heeled. Yeah, uh, and and um, and then one day they collapse, and she's horrified. And she shows the other Barbies. They're like, oh my god, that's hideous. What is wrong with your feet, right? So she ends up several scenes later i think um in front of weird barbie uh you know with the cut off hair and the marker on her face uh and weird barbie is like you're gonna have to go out into the real world babe like you're gonna have to just go out and find the girl who is like putting thoughts of death in your in your head and like flattening your feet um but weird barbie comes at her with like you can have the stiletto or the birkenstock (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <The American spark. laughs> and barbie's like i want the
1: stiletto i definitely want the stiletto and and weird barbie's like no sorry that wasn't actually a choice <laughs> you're being red-pilled girl so like th-
0: th- well it
1: works right like there's there's pieces in here that are actually like i i just it's not okay to be spoofing things and then keep your options open and also be in in the woke world or in what like it's not a spoof if you've kept all of your options open and when the audience decides what it thinks and what it wants then you're like yeah that's what i meant. You right. Have, like as the filmmaker, as the actors and actresses, as as the people who put this together, you have to actually have a position that you stand by because the fact that i can see some goodness here, i'm not i don't want to trust that because they the filmmakers haven't earned the My trust sufficiently to be sure that that scene right there is actually more evocative of what they were trying to do than the bit where um, the Kens are mocked for actually caring about the Barbies.
0: So it is it, we've all met the girl or young woman who uses the idea that she was kidding. To cover if she says something right, right. to see what reaction it gets and the reaction isn't good, then it was kidding. Yeah. Right. And so that is cheating. That it's is cheating. that is cheating. It's
1: absolutely cheating. You don't get to keep all of your options open. Right. You don't get to be like, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna try out this. Oh, you like that? Yeah, I'm gonna bury that shit. Right. And and just keep pushing forward with the thing. Like I was just doing trial balloons. Like, yeah, but at the time you came across as if you had a position, and it turns out you didn't. This was audience-generated conclusion as opposed to you have come to an idea and you have put that idea in a creative form in front of us.
0: So it strikes me that the, the missing thing um, in the dichotomy between the stiletto and the <laughs> Birkenstock uh, is um, the sensible shoes, of course. Right. And I, uh, my, as you know, personally, I find high heels – uh, detract from attractiveness because they suggest a willingness to self-hobble, which I don't find attractive. Yeah.
1: There was an um, event we were going to a while back. Uh, and I was like, I think, I guess I have a fancy event. I think I need to get some heels. You're like, no,
0: <laughs> no.
1: We'll, like, let's, let's find some really nice boots. Yes. I, yeah. Right. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Yeah. I, I'm not against, you know, <laughs> something sexy, but yeah. And,
1: uh, and let's, did anyone get some stupid idea about what that was? I was like, oh, thank God. Okay, I don't have to deal. <laughs> <Good. laughs> right,
0: but you know, if the sensible shoe fits, wear it. Right, and th- that's the missing thing. Yeah. The you know, the ivory girl, girl next door, sensible shoes. The point is, why? And you know, frankly, let's just go there. All right, where are we going? Same issue with huge boobs. They're hobbling. And it's one thing... Well, in
1: some cases, that's a choice, but generally, I mean, it wasn't until recently.
0: huge boobs is in general a choice. Um,
1: Some women have huge boobs.
0: Yep, that is true. But I guess my point is for, you know... They are hobbling because they are mechanistically for something and the fact that they are mechanistically for something and have become an advertisement of fertility and therefore men are focused on them, which causes women in an arms race to go to surgeons to augment these things. The point is actually, again, you're self-hobbling. Yeah, for sure. That's, you know, I don't know. Maybe I'm alone in this, but it's not attractive to self-hobble, right? Right. I mean, I guess, you know. Given who I ended up with, uh, an enabled woman is obviously uh, my type, but a self-hobbling woman, you know, maybe you have to for your role in the world, but if you don't, it just it just seems like an advertisement that you're not interested in accomplishing things, at least in certain realms.
1: Right. No, I mean, it, it's, <clears throat> and, and this, this does play into the um, generally conservative, you know, trad tropes of uh you know this these these are your years honey like between the ages of 16 and 24 or whatever like that's that's when you got to do it so play it for all you got because you're not gonna be worth anything later yeah and so you know to to the women who are playing into that i would say you do hope to live past 24 don't you like you, well, you, you do you do expect to be on this planet for a good long time and it's one thing to be to be beautiful and to say you know what i'm, I'm beautiful but it's quite another to say, that's the only thing that I'm going to invest in. It's like, you know, it's like we've said to our boys, like, what you don't want is for high school to be the best part of your life, right? Like, you 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 always want to be able to look ahead and say, I'm, I'm still trying to get somewhere. I'm still aspiring to something.
0: It strikes me, the tragedy um, for women in an age in which achievement is more possible than it has ever been, where access has been uh, opened up to the the greatest extent, Mm -hmm. is that women have two kinds of potential power. One of them is uh, the result of physical attractiveness. It peaks very, very young and then degrades. And so that idea of like, well, if you're going to capitalize, now's the time, is about this kind of power, which is always coupled with somebody too young to know what to do with power. Inherently. Right, inherently. Whereas the other kind of power for women comes through achievement and insight. And that, of course, as with men, is going to grow over time as you come to understand the world better, come to accumulate skills and all of this. And the sexual obsession of Western civilization has caused one of these things to be emphasized as female power and the other one to be uh ignored and marginalized and the two of them to be mixed so that you yeah. know we will actually do insane things like uh you know critique the looks of a highly achieving woman you know right. as a primary consideration. Right. Um so anyway the the point is yeah. that that trope about you better get on it is really about like a Scholarship is the wrong word because scholarship is about learning. But mm-hmm. the idea that there, for a beautiful woman, there is a way to get a free ride through life. And it involves capitalizing on that female beauty early in life as it peaks and finding someone who will carry you through to the finish line. Yep. Um, and that's not really what anybody should be telling women because there's this whole other thing, which is really about, you know, OK, you're a human being. You've got a lifetime. What can you achieve? Right. Yeah. That's really what we should be emphasizing.
1: That's right. Um, we've been at this for a while. Yes. So um, I know you have a lot that you want to talk about.
0: I will um, try to be efficient about it.
1: Well, I'm just. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm. I'm just trying to hand the sharpie over to you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, Yes, I did. But uh, now he knows he has it. You have the talking Sharpie. I
0: have the talking Sharpie. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, What I want to talk about is something I didn't get to uh, last live stream, Mm -hmm. which is something I've noticed about the term deep state, which is a term that I find tremendously important right up there with something like red pill. And what I noticed was starting in about somewhere in the neighborhood of 2016, That the term I understood, which I don't know when I learned the term deep state, but uh, probably in college, Yeah. uh, that the term that I know was suddenly being supplanted by a definition that not only did I not recognize it as uh, correct, but that was actually destructive of our ability to talk about the deep state, which I believe that we have to. Um, And this had a lot, when it happened in 2016, it had a lot to do with Trump, of course, because Trump was all about talking about the deep state and its effect. Uh, And mind you, the deep state is a hypothesis. I think it's a very strong hypothesis, but it is a hypothesis. By its very nature, it is not something that we can investigate and establish its existence. We have to infer its existence from the way history proceeds. And one of the features of the deep state is that it obscures itself. So it's a troubling problem. But as soon as Trump... So are you
1: going to tell us what the hypothesis is?
0: Well, I'm going to tell you what the two styles are of they definition. They both hypotheses. Um, well, that's a great question. I would say one of them is a hypothesis, and the other has the same status, except that it is so certain to be true that it's effectively a tautology.
1: Okay. So what? <clears throat> excuse me. What you started hearing about in the late '80s, early '90s. Um, is, uh, uh, what was known as the deep state is a hypothesis. And uh, the the newer incarnation, um, yeah, maybe so, but in a trivial way, because it must be true. Yeah,
0: it can't help but be somewhat true. So let us talk about the... Let's, let's start with the second one first, because okay. the uh, I'm, I'm going to argue that this is an illegitimate use of the term and we need some other term for it. And this is, and mind you, many of the people that we like a great deal people we think highly of their capacity to think have embraced a definition l- like this and the definition is essentially the you you have a state the united states and the united states is ostensibly governed by democratic processes in which we elect and unelect people based on our sense that they will do our bidding once in power. But there is a vast bureaucracy under them, and you can't swap it out every time administrations change. So the point is there are a huge number of people who remain in their position in the State Department because they know how to do that thing, and you can't start from scratch every time you switch administrations. So that vast bureaucratic bureaucratic network of people, the term the first time I heard this abused. The point was these are the people who keep the lights on, right? That thing has power because it is composed of of people. Those people have beliefs about what should be true, what shouldn't be true. And you can imagine that that vast bureaucracy, if it were, for example, unhappy with a person or an administration that had just been elected could drag its heels sure. and engage in bits of sabotage here and there, and that, that the amount of power in that vast bureaucratic network that cannot be replaced is um, considerable and it is a force of history that we cannot speak to directly because mm-hmm. it's an emergent property. Okay, so that's the, in my opinion, broken definition the correct definition the
1: broken definition the new definition the, new, the, the, the hypothesis new, sure but it must be true And right. so it's not that interesting to talk about as if it's surprising
0: right it has to be true and i'm not sure i understand the question then I won't. Okay. um so anyway the, i say it's a, a, a tautology because although we can't calibrate how big a force of history it could be. It could be a huge force of history, this bureaucratic uh, inertia, Mm -hmm. or it could be a minor force of history. It could be anywhere in between. Mm -hmm. Um, That it is some force of history is essentially certain. So it is a hypothesis, but it is so close to being certain that we don't have to treat it as uh, highly speculative. Um, The correct definition... I believe, and I now know from doing some research into the history of the term, is quite different. It is effectively a cabal that exists behind the scenes, uh, inside of the governance structure, which doesn't have to mean the official governance structure.
1: Maybe not employed by the government
0: right and in fact it will undoubtedly have roles inside of official government it will have roles outside of official government mm-hmm. and it takes a position on policy but we cannot uh vote against it we cannot evaluate it we cannot and this is i think the sin qua non
1: inherently shadowy
0: it is inherently a shadowy force it does not abide to the consent of the governed We didn't decide to put it in power. It is therefore a violation of the most sacred principle. That's
1: true of both.
0: Yes and no. It's not really true of the bureaucracy because the bureaucracy didn't elect itself. We elected people. They decided how to put the bureaucracy together and their control over it may be less effective than we would like, but it's not that any of the people in the bureaucracy can't be fired. They can all be fired, right? How do you fire the deep state? You can't. Mm-hmm. And I want to point to the thing that I, I would call the... Because sin. they don't
1: have official jobs.
0: Right. It's not an official entity. It doesn't have a name. It doesn't have an office. Mm-hmm. Um, so the point is, yes, there are people in the deep state who are undoubtedly in positions from which they could be fired, but you can't fire the deep state. Why mm-hmm. can't you fire the deep state? Here's the sin qua non, the central element. Okay. The thing that makes it the deep state is a black budget. What does that mean? A black budget is a budget that is acquired through extra-legal, extra-constitutional means. So let's just say the CIA has a budget. That budget comes through the Congress. The Congress has the power of the purse, and the Congress could, in theory, decide to cut off the CIA. However, we do know that, for example, the once-upon-a-time outlandish conspiracy theory that the CIA was trafficking drugs into the United States turns out to be well-supported by evidence.
1: What did they do with those drugs?
0: Well, here's the thing. If, you're, if you are a an entity that has uh, powers to cross borders to engage in crime, frankly, in order to do your job, right? You can't, you know, so the CIA has vast powers to uh, act uh, outside of... The law, ostensibly it is supposed to be acting outside of the United States, but nonetheless it has great powers that have been granted to it by the state. And if it uses those powers to generate funds that are not on the books, then the point is nobody can take those funds away. Mm -hmm. And so...
1: Nor do they need to be explained. Right. Neither can they disappear until they're spent, um, but nor do they need to be uh, spent on anything that has gone through any sort of process and vetting.
0: Right. So what I wanna lay out is a model where why the deep state seems to have come into existence and what it might mean that it seems to exist. Again, it's a hypothesis, but it's one that I believe is is well supported by evidence.
1: Did you sorry, did you run into what when does when does the term emerge? Do you know?
0: Ah. You, you were emergence. hearing it in the
1: late '80s. First, I
0: was hearing it in the late '80s, and then in doing some research, uh, I discovered some things I did not know about the history of the term.
1: There are insects on your paper.
0: There are insects on my paper. Oh. There is now no, no insects. Nothing to do with the deep state. Yeah. Uh, all right. So the source here is a site called ThoughtCo, which I did not know. Can I show this? Uh, yeah, you want to show it, and then um,
1: yeah, ThoughtCo is. Uh, it's hit and miss. It's, it's, not, it's, it's, and miss. Not, it's not
0: perfect, but yeah. I think uh, people can check whether or not they've done their homework properly. But I think what I'm going to read is, uh, I I mean, if they didn't make it up entirely, which they won't have, uh, it, it it's a good first pass. Um, the concept of the deep state, also called a state within a state or a shadow government, was first used in reference to political conditions in countries like Turkey and post-Soviet Russia. During the 50s, an influential anti-democratic coalition within the Turkish political system called the Derin Devlet, literally the Deep State, allegedly dedicated itself to ousting communists from the Turkish Republic founded by Mustafa Ataturk after World War I. Made up of elements within the Turkish military, security, judiciary judiciary branches, The Derelin Devlet worked to turn the Turkish people against its enemies, that is the enemies of the deep state, by staging false flag attacks and planned riots. Ultimately, the Derelin Devlet was blamed for the deaths of thousands of people. So that origin... That's
1: long after Ataturk, but in Ataturk's Turkey.
0: Yeah. Um, So... A... The deep state, if that is indeed the origin of the term, matches what I'm calling the well-supported-by-evidence hypothesis of yep. a cabal that seeks to wield power in spite of not having been elected, and not the vast bureaucracy that keeps the lights on, but probably also has a political perspective that in some way affects the way government governance occurs. Right. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. How does such a thing happen? Well... First, I want to, uh, I don't like doing this, but I think it needs to be done. I want to point out that there are processes which, to an honest uh, broker inside of the intelligence community, inside of um, uh, the establishment in many places, are, are absolutely frightening, right? Processes like democracy, right? Democracy, I mean, you know, the founders of the U.S. were terrified by the ability of the mob to do rash things, and they worried about this in creating a democratic republic. They worried about the tyranny of the majority in particular. Mm -hmm. So democracy is understood to be a dangerous phenomenon because you can't predict what it's going to do. And so you can certainly imagine that somebody, even somebody who ostensibly was public-minded, who was interested in protecting the citizenry might rightly fear that the people could go nuts and do some bad stuff, and so democracy is a kind of a scary principle to um, to establish because what will you do if it doesn't go well? Mm-hmm. Um, likewise, science, right? Science scientists are annoying people. They can come up <laughs> with stuff you so don't. So everyone yeah but i mean from the point of view of folks who are just trying to get stuff done the idea that science can decide that you know what you've been doing in the world is actually dangerous to the public right what do you do if you create an industry and uh, you know it's all going swimmingly and then suddenly somebody pipes up and says hey by the way that process that you're engaged in is causing all of these harms right that's a that's a frightening risk to take journalists oh my god you think scientists are annoying these people are incredible they just don't stop they're always digging into stuff they're always looking for dirt on people and lo and behold you can find that whatever you did to make your business happen is suddenly on the front page of the new york times right so that's a scary process regulators right regulators could uh take uh, some you know 100 million dollar research project of yours that was targeted on finding some uh, beautiful drug that was going to cure some disease and they could decide that uh you know it's not safe to give to enough people to make it profitable That's going to be downstream of the
1: science hopefully
0: one would hope right so anyway My point is there are lots of frightening processes out there that people who are interested in doing whatever it is that they are targeted on could understandably fear, right? Democracy, journalism, science, regulators, they could fear being taxed into oblivion. They could now, in the modern era, they could fear uh, social media influencers, right? (laughs) yes i mean what happens if somebody starts broadcasting inconvenient truths from their man cave about your safe and effective vaccines for example right that could be a problem not a man cave i wasn't talking about us um (laughs) i was talking about someone else's man cave but anyway point is look you can imagine that people who are trying to do stuff in the market might Have understandable fears about what process could come out of nowhere and upend whatever it is they've invested in. And they might think, what can we do to hedge out that risk? Right? Yep. So, that I believe is going to be the origin of this deep state impulse, which is not fundamentally American. We see it in the context of, you know, Turkey and post Soviet Russia. Given exactly. what you just said, it's probably the time to mention that Rumble has collapsed. So we're still on YouTube and you should keep going. But apparently in Rumble. fact, the whole site, actually, it was just us for a little bit and I collapsed. Huh. All right. Well, Rumble has apparently collapsed. That is interesting. Seriously? I wasn't gonna, given that you given what you were talking about. I figured it was worth mentioning. <laughs> is, Late lo- breaking is local news. still working? Uh, the chat's still up on Locals, Um, but people have to watch on YouTube right now.
1: Wow. Well, but we're um, recording it all. all of They'll you go who up. are listening and, and more people do listen afterwards than, than watch, um, this should concern you not at all, but that's rather remarkable.
0: I've never seen Rumble. Rumble has large it rather it doesn't tend to collapse. Yeah. Um, well, in any case, I Regardless. Mean, what what else is there to do but for see the strangest things can leap up and get in the road of what you're trying to accomplish? Um, oh,
1: they don't seem that strange anymore.
0: Yeah, they don't mm-hmm. seem that strange anymore. Yeah. Now, let's talk about what it means if we dichotomize the concept of deep state. And mind you, I have a uh, lexicographical rule. Is that a word?
1: I don't know. I don't lexicograph yeah. I,
0: I have a word about <laughs> lexicon. Okay. It's just a part of the
1: lexicological?
0: Lexicological. <laughs> I don't uh, think that's principle. a word well
1: what's that? Lexographical. Lexographical. <laughs> all right. That was uh, that was your mother-in-law.
0: That was a team effort. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. The rule is this. First of all, the reason for the rule is the following thing. When you do independent work, when you think independently about some realm, mm-hmm. you end up having to redefine terms it is required because if we use the definitions of terms that are generally available, they all have become blunt because people use them in many different ways. And so every term is a blunt instrument. And in order to do logical work properly, you have to sharpen the terms so that they mean something very precise. And most people who do this forget that they've redefined them. And then when they talk to each other, they sound like idiots. They are unable to converse. So my rule on interacting with people who have likely redefined terms for their own purposes is, look, I don't care if we use my definition or your definition, but I care that every single term we need is precisely defined and that there is a term for every single thing we need to talk about. Um, And you start
1: by trying to establish a dictionary.
0: Right. And it mm-hmm. takes weeks often to learn to understand some what somebody means by the words that they're using. So yeah. you know
1: Or just you, I guess I, I haven't seen you try to establish a dictionary so much as be insistent on stopping whenever a word is used that might have any complexity to it at all and being like, Okay, you use that word and, and rather than sort of princess bride style, like I don't think you know what that <laughs> word means. Like how
0: are you using that? What do you right. think it means? What what right? are you what are you yeah. and so in this case I'm gonna say that the evidence that the term deep state actually comes from Turkey. And that it means something close to what I think the deep good. state means is yes. a case in which that that definition should prevail. And the vast bureaucratic inertia that prevents things from changing as fast as uh, the ballot box would have it change. Um, vast need,
1: bureaucratic inertia sounds pretty good. Vast
0: bureaucratic inertia, yeah. something. It, it needs a term and maybe that's a, a decent one. Um but, okay, so the qua non, just as the sin qua non of fascism is the fusion of corporate power and government power. The qua non of the deep state is the existence of a black budget that allows it to remain okay. even when attempts to control it are imposed and allows it to continue over time um, uh, without uh, us being able to assess what it's done because we can't look at what it's spent, yeah uh okay, so. To me, this question, let's talk again in the realm of hypothesis. We have a battle that never resolves over what took place in 1963 in the United States, in Delia Plaza. A president was assassinated. Nobody disputes this. But what the meaning of that assassination was, we are battling over it even if we don't realize it right there is a battle over the narrow question did oswald act alone or was there some group involved in that assassination but what we don't typically talk about is the implication of that branch Mm -hmm. in the decision tree if oswald acted alone then it wasn't a coup because oswald died days later at the hand of Jack Ruby. So he wouldn't have taken power anyway, but he certainly didn't take power because he died. So he did not commit an assassination to take power. On the other hand, if something else assassinated Kennedy, then there is at least the possibility that there was a coup, that something killed him in order to take power. And if that did happen, then the question is, what happened to it? Does it still have power? Did it lose power in a later election? We don't know, and we can't ask the question in a standard sense because it doesn't exist on the books.
1: Well, and did it lose power in a later election? That question suggests that um, that it would inherently that some elections might cause a deep state entity to lose power, and I don't I don't think it would be that clean.
0: Well, so again, we are now in the realm of speculation.
1: Yeah, and, and there are so many levers. You know, there's, some stru- there's some structure, hypothetically, which is unknown to us, unseen by us, uh, and uh, the nature of the hierarchy within that structure is totally unperceived. So what would cause it to... Lose power, change power, um, come to want a different thing.
0: Well, you know, let's put it this way: an overt coup, a military uh, regimen goes rogue, kills the likes of which
1: we don't see here. We don't.
0: It's not. It's not not an American style.
1: You know, modern Africa.
0: Sure. Yeah. So some junta takes over. They rule for a bit, and then some process happens, and the junta is no longer in power. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly what the origin story for the Sandinistas who were briefly in power in Nicaragua was, but the
1: Yeah, actually and some 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 modern stories from Latin America too with a little bit so little a little bit
0: loosely more speaking, involved, but loosely speaking, yeah. the Sandinistas defeated the Somoza regime in yeah. Nicaragua. Yeah. They ruled for a bit and were uh, displaced by the UNO party, I believe. Yeah, Violeta uh, Chamorro, Chamorro. Uh, right?
1: Which, with the help of the CIA,
0: uh, right? Exactly. Right. So,
1: in, in uh, 1980s, sometime late l- late 80s.
0: 80s, yeah. So, okay, so that would be the way that something that had engaged in a coup could lose power later. And there was a weird power sharing arrangement in Nicaragua where the Sandinistas actually remained in charge of the military. Uh, in the aftermath of the Chamorro administration taking power. So anyway, it it was an interesting, interesting story. But, you know, such things are not, you know, Nicaragua still exists. Um,
1: Although, I mean, just as an aside, uh, when we were there in 1991, uh, the... uh, totally justified anti-American sentiment was uh intense and we had we traveled through all of the countries of central america except for belize and el salvador on that trip and only in nicaragua did we feel like we are clearly not welcome here and we understand why and uh, we're not going to spend a lot of time
0: so 1963 yeah was that an assassination with no coup or was that a coup that we couldn't see because we didn't understand What had taken place. And I will say, you know, oh my God, wild eyed conspiracy theory. Well, turns out that according to the site uh, 538, Nate Silver's statistical site, Mm -hmm. uh, only 33% of Americans, and this is a relatively recent survey, only 33% of Americans believe that Oswald acted alone. Um, So the idea that there was some sort of a conspiracy that involved Oswald plus at least one other person. Uh, is widely shared, yeah, and for good reason, if you look at the evidence surrounding the Kennedy assassination, it is just
1: like the ballistics and you know, like... yes,
0: how could Oswald shooting yeah. from where he was shooting have accomplished what he did accomplish? It is not a easily answered question in fact it 's kind of an unanswerable question. I would also say there is uh, you know just to take one example, if you look at um Dan Rather, who was given the exclusive right to view the Zapruder film, the Zapruder film, which we, I think, all kind of intuitively feel has been around since the assassination, but was actually held privately until mm-hmm. relatively recently, Dan Rather reports exactly incorrectly what he saw on that film. Exactly and, incorrectly? Yes. About the he reports exactly incorrectly about the trajectory of the president's head in the aftermath which suggests that the bullet came from the depository which is not what's reflected on the actual zapruder film i think i just
1: don't understand the semantics thing of what you're saying
0: dan rather was given the exclusive right to talk about the zapruder film what he says in his public report is exactly incorrect. If you look at the Zapruder film and you look at what Dan Rather said about the Zapruder oh. film, they are exactly inconsistent.
1: So he is asked to public comment, uh, to comment publicly on the Zapruder film before anyone in the public can see it. Right. And he makes comments that w- once the Zapruder film is in the public realm, which it is now, you can see is uh, exactly the opposite of what is actually happening.
0: Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And so it What Rather said supports the idea that the shot came from the book depository behind the president, and what is on the film does not. Um, but anyway, so there's lots of strange evidence. And then there's the strangest piece of evidence of all from the John Kennedy assassination, which is the Robert Kennedy Sr. assassination. If there was a coup in 1963, did it protect itself in 1968 by eliminating Robert Kennedy Sr.? So anyway, there's good reason for Americans to wonder whether or not something took control and refused to relinquish it. Mm -hmm. And that this is, you know, if that didn't happen, then our history looks like one thing. And if we've been living under a regime that is not elected and decided to take power and not relinquish it, our history means something entirely different. For 60 years. Well, you know, I don't think Trump is part of it. I think... Somehow, Trump actually got himself elected, and if that was in spite of the fact that a deep state existed and didn't want him uh, to ascend to the office, then he uh, outfoxed it, um, which is pretty interesting, and it would explain a lot of what has happened in the aftermath, right? Oh, my God, the deep state has lost its power, but of course, because it's a deep state and the fact that a president is antagonistic to it doesn't mean that the president can shut it down because it doesn't have a phone number, right? Um, so anyway that would explain a lot of, of what we've seen there and in any case it's just simply something that we need to wrap our minds around. Our history could mean one of two things depending upon what happened in 1963 and we don't know um, so that is that is a, a profound challenge it requires us to yes. clarify our thinking around what the term deep state actually um, means and I guess I would connect it to one other thread, an important uh, thread that has bubbled up in the in the public conversation of late, which has to do with Biden family corruption, specifically surrounding Hunter, and you know the defense that has always been made is, well, that's Hunter, that's not Joe, but. Much of what Hunter says suggests Joe was involved, and in fact there's evidence this week that uh, Hunter put uh, Joe on the phone. Uh, in any case, there is the terrible stench of, um, of influence, uh, influence peddling with impunity by the Bidens. Now, this is slightly galling to me because I was trying to call attention to that fact before Joe Biden was elected president. I don't know how many times between uh, uh, my Twitter account, between interviews in various places, Dark Horse, uh, or um, what was it called, the campfires that -hmm. Unity 2020 held, the idea that the DNC was an influence-peddling racket, that uh, Joe Biden was a clear uh, career influence peddler, that this put the country in great danger. These were things in which I was trying to raise the alarm before we ever elected this guy president. And the fact that we are now finally seeing tons and tons of evidence, I mean, okay, the evidence is interesting, but how could anybody be shocked by this? This was obvious that this is uh, what the man was. And as his decrepitude has advanced, the failure of the blue team to react like this is in any way important actually suggests that they understand that the president is not really in power. It doesn't matter that he's decrepit because something else controls the way the country functions in the first place. And so I'm not sure what to do with all of that, but we do seem to be stuck in a place where something appears to be controlling our trajectory. We have elections, but elections are not the same thing as democracy, Um, and we are now faced with um, an appalling level of control over what we can discuss. We are now watching people. Uh, Joe Marcola had his bank accounts suspended um, for without explanation by Chase Bank. Um, this is he.
1: he, he reports Dr. Marcola. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, he he reco- He reports that this has happened and. You know, between the insane overreach, punishing people who um, speak out of turn, the IRS showing up at Matt Taibbi's door uh, in the immediate aftermath of uh, Twitter Files revelations, the number of uh, off-brand forms of control and coercion that are being used to prevent. Uh, those who would still engage in journalism, those who would uh, engage, still engage in science in science, those who would engage in medicine uh, medicine, any of these things, it's obvious that it's happening and what the connection between all these things is admittedly, I don't know, but it's obvious that we should be asking the question, especially you know in light of what we have discovered about for example, the five eyes Alliance, which is. Uh, an alliance between the United States, the UK, New Zealand, Canada, and Australia that effectively functions to allow uh, um, states to outsource violations of its own citizens' rights by having the intelligence agencies of other countries uh, do the spying.
1: God, other than uh, the fact that it's missing Canada, that's a greatest hits of bad COVID response countries.
0: I think it does have Canada. UK... U.S., Canada, Canada, New Zealand, Zealand? Australia. That's crazy. Yeah.
1: That's like, that's the greatest hits right there. That's
0: the greatest hits. Right. And actually, uh, so anyway, the point is, what is that thing? Well, you know, um, intelligence agencies, you know, the the FBI is limited by the Constitution. The CIA is not limited by the Constitution because it's ostensibly supposed to be pointed outwards outside of the United States. Um, But you know you can trade effectively you can have somebody else spy on your citizens in a way you're not technically allowed to and if everybody pools those resources basically the constitutional protections don't exist
1: but but it sounds like you're opposed to convenience
0: (laughs) well (laughs) okay we're going to add convenience to recreation as things that (laughs) i alone am opposed to but (laughs) um alright uh, i'm gonna get off I mean, my... you
1: grant that it makes it easier for them yeah
0: it's a, it's an efficiency thing it's, yeah it saves money off their black budgets right. so right. <laughs> they can right. hmm. yeah. yeah all right um i think that that's more or less what i wanted to outline we will we will oh no there was one other thing i wanted to add um
1: is that's 48 point font uh, i'm <laughs> sorry
0: <laughs> i'm stuck permanently i don't need glasses for distance i do need them for reading and if i'm not going to be constantly putting them on. uh, I need to have large fonts, So I make no apologies.
1: I know. I I wouldn't Um, have said that if I thought you were embarrassed by it.
0: Yeah. Um. All right. So here's the final thing I want to point out. We have a terrible corruption problem, Mm -hmm. right? Those of us who have thought deeply about it, call it capture for a reason, because it's not an adjustment to policy based on a a certain amount of uh, resources flowing in the wrong direction. It is actually the commandeering of agencies and institutions and the repurposing uh, of them often in the exact inverse direction that they are supposed to be pointed. Okay, so that's a terrible problem. We've now seen it. During COVID, not only did we do everything wrong, but we did everything the opposite of right, right? Something was very interested in pharma coming out of that you know, glowing, and uh, it didn't really care that people were going to get maimed in the process. All right, that's a terrible corruption problem. Does anybody think that the fact that we have a pay-for-play political system has not been noticed by our enemies? Why would our enemies not have noticed that in the United States, if you have enough resources, you can get policy that fits your special interest. And if your special interest is that you're an enemy of the U.S. and you want us, for example, um, to, I don't know, feminize our military or something so they're less scary, uh, that there's probably a price, right? Given Biden family corruption, I think we have to ask the question, why are we fighting a proxy war in Ukraine? Why are we risking nuclear war in Ukraine? Is that because somebody thinks this is a good idea for the American public, or is it because something external has paid the price to get us to do it? I don't know the answer to that question. I don't pretend to, but I do think it is a question we have to ask. And I would, I in thinking about how to present this, I remembered, as you know, one of my favorite uh, fiction books is Catch Twenty Two, and I was reminded of particular episode in Catch 22. Almost all of the episodes in Catch 22 have been uh, have happened in real life in a much less comedic form yes. in the years since I've been aware of it. But I was reminded of uh, a, a particular episode in Catch 22 surrounding Milo Minderbinder. And for those who haven't read the book, I just want to say Milo Minderbinder I think is the most interesting character in the whole book. Milo Minderbinder starts out as a likable, uh, ambitious patriot who attempts to do his job. He is in charge of the commissary, I guess, uh, providing Surprise. food.
1: Oh, just food.
0: Uh, yeah, I think, I oh, think yes. he's providing food for the pilots in this, uh, World War II Air Force Base. And Milo, uh, initially provides wonderful food, because if he's going to provide food, why wouldn't he provide the best? And so he does a spectacular job, and this brings him in contact with the market, right? Because, of course, you have to source the ingredients to make the marvelous food for the pilots. And so anyway, he... uh, At first, makes normal contact with market forces, and as the book progresses, those market forces turn him from this likable, uh, you know, ambitious guy with plenty of pluck and ingenuity,
1: but also an underlying patriotism,
0: underlying patriotism into a Hitlerian character, right, Um, seamlessly. And so, in one case, uh, which I. uh, I managed to find the text of Um, Milo, who has produced something called the Syndicate. The Syndicate does the trading that allows him to procure the supplies, but it becomes this business. Um, So in one of his, you know, in an early uh, episode with the Syndicate, the Syndicate... Um, has purchased a huge amount of Egyptian cotton, which turns out to have been a terrible... He can't unload the stuff. He can't trade it. He's just got warehouses full of the stuff, and he wants to get rid of it. And so he decides to try to feed it to the pilots. And, of course, it's... Yeah. Yeah. Inedible. It it turns out to be cotton. So it didn't work. work. But anyway, yeah. that's mild compared to what goes on later. Later in the book, uh, there's a, a case where Nately, one of the pilots, has died because he's bailed out of his plane and his parachute has been replaced by shares in the syndicate, which he discovers as he pulls the ripcord. Um, and Milo has a conversation with Yosarian about the fact of Nately's untimely death. Milo says... Nately died a wealthy man, Yossarian. He had over 60 shares in the syndicate. Yosarian says, what difference does that make? He's dead. Minderbinder says, well, then his family will get it. Yosarian says, he didn't have time to have a family. Milo says, then his parents will get it. Yosarian says, they don't need it. They're rich, Milo says. Then they'll understand. So anyway, Mm. he becomes this evil character. In one of the episodes, Mm. Milo contracts with the Nazis to bomb his own base, right? Now, this is a a mind-bending problem because what Milo does is he reasons that the Germans are going to bomb the base. Anyway. Anyway. They're going to do it and people are going to get killed. And Milo can bomb the base as a contractual matter and he can make sure that nobody gets hurt.
1: It's like, we're going to do it for you right and you're going to pay us right and so we'll do your work for you
0: right and so my point is the market has a mind bending logic not all of the logic is tolerable right you can make a defense of Milo Minderbinder bombing his own base because the point is the base is going to get bombed and nobody's going to get killed this way it's a moral good someone's right?
1: going to do it and i did it better
0: right and my point is The corruption that we see and the role that it plays in our history, which we will never fully understand, is such a thing. Whatever market forces cause people to fear that democracy was going to upend good processes for no reason, I mean, and this does happen, right? We see absolutely nonsensical stuff, uh, warning stickers over everything, right? If warning stickers actually save lives then too many warning stickers kills people because you don't read warning stickers anymore, right? So we see a proliferation of warning stickers that originally came from some honorable impulse but has just gotten out of control.
1: Warning stickers have been found by the state of California to cause cancer.
0: (laughs) That would be good. (laughs) I bet they do if you eat enough of them. But anyway, the point is, look, there are legitimate fears to have about democracy, journalism, science, right? Good people can find themselves upended by people nitpicking them to death. On the other hand, without the processes that are capable of nitpicking people to death, we are vulnerable to something else, which is the very stuff that the founders of this country feared, Mm. right? Unbridled power in the hands of something like a monarch, um, descents into tyranny of all kinds. And so in any case, we're going to have to address the question of the deep state does it exist what is it made of and how can we um remove it so we can go back to the frightening prospect of democracy
1: let's figure it out
0: all right that on the next episode of dark
1: oh really okay <laughs> you promised big man yeah okay um we're gonna take a break and come back with a live q a all right. Uh, we're going to probably make it brief because that was, that we went on for a while. Um,
0: we didn't break the whole internet, but we broke Rumble.
1: Apparently. It's back. Oh, good. It's back it's, it's mostly. It's back mostly. Right. I don't even know what that means. Um, so check out, um, check out Natural Selections, where uh, I read from a lot of You Go Girl this week, uh, which I posted yesterday. Uh, We've got darkhorsestore.org where you can get uh, a variety of awesome merchandise printed right here in the United States by this lovely couple uh, right here in the middle of the country. Uh, We've got PSYOP, Until Proven Otherwise, and and Pfizer, The Breakthroughs Never Stop, various various other things. You can, of course, get A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century uh, anywhere that you can find books and signed copies are available at Darvils, which is right here in the San Juan Islands, and you can order them online. And we've got our monthly private Q&A coming up this Sunday at 11 a.m. Uh, for one more month, we're going to be doing that at um, my Patreon. And as soon, by the end of the day, the dog is groaning in the background, it's like, not Patreon again. <laughs> um, <laughs> I feel
0: the same way about it since they threw Carl Benjamin on. I
1: know. Um, well, the Labrador and the Carl Benjamin are on the same team, apparently. Um but this, uh, this Sunday at 11 a.m. Pacific, we're going to be doing our two-hour private Q&A. You can join us there by coming to my Patreon. And uh, before the end of the day, I will have up there as well the ability for uh, people to ask questions at the $11 tier uh, for that private Q&A. And then we're going to be uh, moving our, the, the those conversations to locals starting next month. We haven't figured out all the details, but um, that will be happening there. And of course, you can be watching the chat uh, on locals as well with the watch party or we'll be participating in the watch party there. Um, what else do we want to talk about? Um, sneezing, dog sneezing. So many, so many little distractions here. Um, soon, also, at Locals, we're going to have access to our great Discord community. Right now, you can get that through our Patreons, and we're not going to be shutting those down. We're just going to be moving uh, a bunch of the stuff into, into Locals, uh, but on the Discord, you can engage in honest conversations uh, about difficult topics, join a book club, unwind with virtual happy hours and karaoke. Uh, lots of great people there, uh, so consider joining, joining our Discord and uh let's see once oh and the people on discord send us a question every week which is where we start our q a's with so uh, that rumble exclusive q a that's going to be happening soon assuming that rumble stays up uh, we'll begin with a question from the discord once again check out our wonderful sponsors this week which were paleo valley mudwater and hillsdale college and remember that we are supported by you our audience so please subscribe like share give a review uh anywhere that reviews are found um i don't know probably not like craigslist but, <laughs> but i guess there are a lot of places reviews are found that you probably won't find us but anywhere you find us we'll,
0: you know. craigslist, we'll see what we'll get for it
1: we're not selling the podcast are we it is used <laughs>
0: <laughs> previously enjoyed
1: yes all right um until we see you next time be good to the ones you love eat good food and get outside
0: be well everyone